Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome to the latest episode of the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, Masayahu Raul, and uh, today we've got a great guest with us, Liz Kleinrock, coming out of uh, California. And uh, we met a few weeks ago at a presentation that Liz did here in Richmond uh, in conjunction with the Holocaust Museum. So since then, I've sort of attempted to keep contact with her, uh, work out our schedules so that we could get together and actually do the show. Uh, Liz, welcome to Leading by History. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you. You know, I really appreciated and enjoyed the presentation that you did. And, um, you know, it provided an opportunity to really have some good conversations with folk that were at the table where I was. And uh, glad that I had some teachers from my district who were there to be able to learn a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself? Just sort of give us an introduction into the kind of work um, that you've been doing around anti-bias, anti-racism, and uh, just sort of bring us up to speed on what you've been working on so that my audience can be familiar with uh, yeah. with your work. Totally. Um, so my name is Liz Kleinrock. The pronouns are she, her, hers. I am based in Los Angeles, California, but I am actually a transracial Korean adoptee. So I grew up in D.C., white family, only person of color, which I will definitely say has impacted my passion and my drive for this work and wanting to make sure that both young learners and families are equipped with language and strategies and tools to cultivate anti-racist and anti-bias households and learning environments. I have been an elementary school teacher for 10 years and over the past 10 years have taught first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade. Um, and also served as my former school's diversity coordinator. This past year has been my first out of the classroom. Um, I'm currently writing a book with Heinemann Publishing about how to assist educators in overcoming perceived barriers that prevent them from engaging in anti-bias, anti-racist work in the classroom or you know, digging into topics surrounding identity markers like race and gender and religion and things like that. And so right now I work with a lot of different schools and districts and organizations throughout the entire country to learn more about their communities, what their communities um, or pressing needs are, and how can we create this kind of environment to also support teachers in con concretizing this work within the classroom. That's a big mm. bit of a mouthful, but essentially that's what no. I do. <laughs> right, right. No, no, you're doing some good work. And as I was saying to you, as we spoke before uh, the show, that, you know, I've seen your name in, in circles of people that I know or am familiar with. And when you get a shout out from my man, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, as being a solid, solid teacher, and he would put his kids in your class without hesitation. That's pretty good stuff. I can think of no higher <laughs> yeah. compliment. He is amazing. And I listened to uh, his episode on your show as well. He's incredible. You're both incredible. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. When we have people that are highly recommended, we want to make sure that our audience has the ability to engage with them and, and get a little bit of what they do. Now, for this show, I really wanted to talk about anti-bias, anti-racism, or some would say anti-racism, anti-bias. So when we talk about anti-bias, anti-racism, what is that? Define that for the listener. Sure. Um, so I actually used to use very different language, and I think my the, the words I choose are very intentional are also very much evolving. The more I learn and the more I unlearn. Um, I used to 
be very rooted in this idea of like social justice, but often found that that term felt very appropriated, especially like here in LA, you can see people like walking down the street and like Lululemon tank tops that say like social justice warrior and stuff like that just felt kind of icky after a bit. And then I was using language more around diversity and equity inclusion, which I still use, but I've also felt like those are very much buzzwords these days in education and that people really throw them around without ever getting on the same page about what they mean or what it takes to actually work towards inclusive communities and practices and achieving equity for all learners. I really like anti-bias and anti-racism because they're both rooted in action not just like slapping a label on yourself, like I'm an ally, it's like that. But recognizing that these are parts of ourselves and our practices that we have to consistently interrogate to unpack and actively dismantle, that it's not enough to just say, well, I'm a good person, I'm not racist because I don't use racial slurs, like I don't belong to like white supremacist hate groups, but like what actual actions are you taking every single day in your life? Like what choices are you making to dismantle white supremacy? And I think especially working with young kids, like getting them rooted in that idea that it's not just a label, that it's um, a type of action that you need to take and something that you need to be aware of. So with students in schools, how can we begin to cultivate this critical lens for them where they can begin to self-examine and critique the choices they're making and the ones that their peers and community members are taking every day? And, you know, what's interesting to me is that anti-racist is actually in uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary now, and so is anti-bias. I think that what you are explaining is a little bit more than what we get from Merriam-Webster. You know, it just says opposed to racism for anti-racist. And then for anti-bias, opposing or prohibiting unfair discrimination, that's a little bit more action-oriented, right? To oppose and then prohibit. In other words, I'm taking action to counteract or prevent it. So I actually like their definition of anti-bias you know, preventing and counteracting bias. Yeah. But, you know, they they didn't have as strong of a definition for anti-racism, I think, because it's still a terminology that's being developed and worked out, even though it's been around for, what, the last 20 years or so or a little bit more. A lot of things I'm noticing, there's this retro piece, right? Like, even in fashion among Gen Zers, there's this retro thing where I started noticing a few years back that the high top fades were coming back and the parts in the hair and the big gold rope chains. And I'm like, wait a minute, I grew up on that in the 80s, right? (laughs) There's this retro thing. Well, I think the same thing is happening in education today, you know, because when I saw your presentation, I saw you had Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and then I'm looking at stuff from my district and I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at people from my district who are going to conferences and they're pulling out Freire, they're pulling out Angela Davis. They're, you know, it's just like, wow, y'all are going back to get some stuff, some bell hooks information. And it's like a lot of things that may have come out, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's this retro piece that's coming back. But I think, as you said, some of the, the, the terms like, you know, to be culturally relevant and and um, to have culturally relevant pedagogy. That sounds good, you know, to be social justice oriented. All of that stuff sounds good, but I think, as you said, it's become very buzzwordy. And so now I think lifting some of these ideas from some earlier decades is coming back now, but with it's more about the practice as opposed to just using as a as a buzzword. Does that sound accurate? Does that sound feasible? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think like a really good example of what you're talking about is the way that folks are often using the word intersectional these days, like referencing the Kimberly right. Crenshaw um, is amazing. Um, but like that paper that she wrote came out in like 89 or something like it's not new right. information, but the way that that word is now being used by folks outside of activism and like educator circles, especially outside of like, um, like black communities and brown communities, you can tell that there really isn't like a deep understanding of what it actually means to be intersectional, you know, mm-hmm. or that it's just right. very, it's very surface level. It's more about like the appearance of diversity and recognizing that like people look different, but not recognizing also that systems are a huge part of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the things that I encounter so many educators, and I've said this in previous shows, so many educators now like getting a master's degree is like the norm, right? Where if you go back 15, 20 years ago, having a master's degree was really like, wow, like you, you like, like now it's sort of like accepted, like you don't have your master's, right? And so it's sort of like one of those things now. And I think because so many educators, especially in K-12 education, where, where I spend the bulk of my time, so many educators have master's degrees it's almost assumed by some educators that because they have a master's degree that they now understand everything, right? Like I read a book about it and I'm good because I have a master's degree now, so I'm straight. And I think we're living in a time where so many people are educated and we see that the data shows us that teachers across the nation really hate PD, right? They hate professional development, especially what's offered by school systems. So it's this unique mix of people who are educated, but yet sometimes some of them don't have all of the information, but because they are educated, like, I got this and I'm good, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, just because you read Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist doesn't mean now that you're a practitioner or that you've got an understanding of this and you're going to go and conquer, you know, white supremacy single-handedly by just leaping through the pages. Absolutely. You know what I'm oh, saying? There's so much to unpack with what you just said. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Take, take some time with it. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Unpack it. <laughs> I mean, I think the first part you were saying about, you know, the, the presumption that educators have to have a certain type of degree, have to reach like a certain point in education. Of course, like you can have a degree in anything. You can even have a degree in education and curriculum, but it doesn't mean you know how to teach. You know, like one of my advisors in, um, in school would always say like, you know, it's like cooking, like you can read cookbooks all you want, but if you actually want to learn how to cook, you have to get into the kitchen. And it's the same thing with working in schools and classrooms. Um, like you can read every anti-racist, like critical race theory piece out there, but it doesn't mean that you have any idea how to apply it in your everyday life or to teach other people about it, especially like young people. Um, and I think it also goes into how much like colonized thinking and white supremacy also enters um, like higher learning spaces, like how much emphasis we put on the degree that you hold as a level Mm. of your credibility, your expertise, rather than people's lived experiences and how they process and reflect and share that out with other people. Um, Like you don't have to have a PhD, like you don't have to wear the suit and tie in order to be Mm -hmm. somebody who lives and breathes this work and has a tremendous impact on communities. Yes. And that's true, you know, um, and I think that gets to the core of what I wanted to talk with you about, which was, you know, being a practitioner, I don't consider myself 
and anti-bias, anti-racist in the sense that I am what is the quintessential anti-bias, anti-racist person. Like I see myself as a person who is a student of anti-racist and anti-biased philosophy who attempts to implement that as I gain more understanding. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, because I've always had this issue with people who, and I think we talked about this when we met, you know, they'll say things like, hey, I'm a feminist, right? Or I'm a womanist. You can't just read an article or you are in a circle of people who talk about womanism or feminism or whatever the case, and then you just say, oh, yeah, well, I'm that, but there's nothing that you're doing in your daily life to actually work towards those set goals, right? Like social justice isn't a thing, right? Like, yeah, I got to pull out my social justice thing and then do this little, you know, whatever. It's like social justice is a goggle through which you, you view. It's a lens through which you view and, and engage the world. You see injustice and social justice as a lens allows you to first acknowledge that there is injustice and then secondarily saying, well, now what am I going to do about it? So I have issue with people that are not in the practice of these things, associating them, themselves with these things. And I think you, you talked about when you first came on the show um, in the beginning, you talked about allies, right? What's the difference between an ally and a practitioner, right, when it comes to anti-bias, anti-racist action? Yeah, so the language I use, especially with my students, um, instead of ally is, are you being an accomplice and are you being a co-conspirator? Because I feel like those words are much more deeply rooted in action and aligning yourself with a person or group of people who might be oppressed or marginalized. That ally is not just like a label you can stick on yourself. Like let's think about like June, like Pride Month and how many businesses and how many people will like deck themselves out in like rainbow gear and go to their local pride parade and say like, I'm an ally to queer people. And it's like, cool, but like, what are you doing the other 11 months of the year? Mm-hmm. And I think with being a co-conspirator and being an accomplice, it's recognizing that supporting and lifting up or creating space for other folks can be really multifaceted. It's not just standing next to people. Sometimes it's taking a step back to create more space for others. Sometimes it's stepping up to use your voice, your power, your privilege to create awareness or access that other people don't have. It's about what are you also willing to risk and what are you willing to do to align yourselves with folks who have been on the oppressed side of history and you know currently in our society today? So that's why I tend to prefer those words versus ally. And what would you define as a bystander or sympathizer? <laughs> well, there's so much of it. Um, on like a very simple level, a bystander is just somebody who watches things happen and they might have feelings about how people are being treated or what's being said. And maybe they go back to their homes and have like a side conversation with friends about how they saw or witnessed something and how awful it made them feel. But in that moment, they didn't do anything. I think being a bystander means that you try to just minimize the level of risk for yourself. Like you are centering yourself and your own comfort rather than stepping up to the plate for other people. Mm. Centering yourself in your own comfort as opposed to stepping up to the plate for other people. That's a hip-hop quotable. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's good stuff. I'll put and on. So, 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's good. We're gonna take we're gonna take that and run with that. I love that. So when we talk about this kind of work and being anti-bias, anti-racist, what are some ways that that can be translated into the classroom? I know I saw I've seen some of your work that you've done with elementary students, and I'm just completely wowed by the stuff, you know, I'm just sort of like, wait a minute, how in the world are you doing this in the classroom with like, you know, students this young? But I think it ties into what we were talking about with uh, Dr. Jeffries in the previous show, where we talked about at what age do we begin to talk about race and talking about slavery and so forth, and that at the earliest levels, we need to be having teachers engage students in these things. What does that look like? What are some things that you've done in your classroom to help kids really deal with the concept of, of race and recognizing that race and racism, should I say, you know, it's not something good. A lot of people would say, man, that's too heavy content for, you know, little kids to be able to, you know, relate to and understand. What do you say? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, the first thing that I have to do is I have to start with my own self-work. And like in the workshop that where I met you, I talked a bit about there being these like parallel tracks of work that need to be happening at the same time in order to support one another. So you have your actual like curriculum, you have like what you're teaching, your books, your texts, you have your pedagogy, like how you're actually teaching it and engaging with it. And then you also have your self-work. Like, what are you doing to continuously try to identify like your biases and the way that you are communicating with students or might be holding certain students to different expectations than other students? Um, the way that you engage with family members, um, like, are you keeping an asset based lens or are you placing blame on things, uh, placing blame on families or students for things that really they are not contributing to, but are really just a product of like oppressive systems that we're all participating in. And so I want to make sure, first of all, that I am getting to know my students and getting to know their families. Like one of the questions that I ask families before we even start the school year is like, tell me about your kids. And I'd also like to know about your experience when you were in this grade. And it's really interesting to see what family members and adults begin to unpack just with that question. It also gives me a lot of information about how I might be able to communicate with them best throughout the entire year and support them and their students learning. Within like the classroom itself, like I think libraries and you know, the texts that you bring into classrooms are like probably the lowest hanging fruit that people can begin with. Like no matter where you're teaching the attitude of your admin or colleagues about anti-bias and anti-racism in the classroom, like there are certain things that you do have control over as a teacher. So how can you identify those pieces and make sure that you have authors who are reflective of the student identities in your classroom, that if you are teaching history, that it's not coming from a white Western perspective, like all of the time, like where are you pulling your resources from? Are they actually created by people's people who are reflected in that history itself? And then thinking about your teaching practices too. Am I only validating certain students who contribute or participate in a certain way? How do I even define participation? Um, how am I gathering data? How am I observing the relationships that my students are cultivating with each other? Like there are so many moving pieces and I think I just gave like a lot of information, but right. if we can set aside time per day or per week, like digging into each one of those pieces, we begin to see how all of those parts come together to support one another because it's really about creating a classroom environment and community because you as a teacher could be, you know, teaching um, all of this incredible history, you know, really unknown history from all of these different perspectives. But if you are still 
implementing like really oppressive practices, like shaming your students or having them engage in the work really in just like one very prescribed way, then you're still not Mm -hmm. really being anti-bias or culturally responsive with your kids. And so we just try to make sure that we are creating an environment where I can act as a facilitator more than like the leader of the classroom. That Mm -hmm. when I develop work and curriculum with my students, I try to always keep an inquiry-based perspective in how we're engaging with different types of material and topics, because ultimately I want my kids to be able to explain what they think they know about certain topics and then generate questions about those topics. So they're really the ones driving what we're learning and gathering that initial information. Like if folks are familiar with like KWL charts, like what do you collecting? What do you think you know about something? What do you want to know? What have you learned? I know like it seems like a very basic one-on-one teaching strategy, but from my experience, it's been the most powerful because in that first section, like when we come back to what does anti-bias work really look like with students? When you ask students, what do you think you know about something? All of their biases are going to come out. You are going to get an idea of what they actually know about a topic and what misconceptions they have. So you can then redirect the way that you instruct and the way that you facilitate to also address and start to have them begin to unlearn some of those misconceptions that they're bringing into certain topics. I agree. I agree. That qual chart, as we used to call it back in the day, is not only helpful with children, but it's also fantastic for work with adults when you're doing andragogy and you're, you're, you know, you're teaching adults about these things as well. So, yes, sometimes the most simple and basic forms of instruction, if they're found in best practice and effective practices, sometimes those are the go-to things, man, because people don't think about how a KWL chart actually ties into, as you said, cultural responsiveness with students, because the, the whole idea of cultural responsiveness is to be able to connect with your students on their level in the way that they understand. And what better way to do that than to say, hey, what do you know and what do you understand? Right, very basic level, but this is what we do as human beings. This is how we build relationships with each other, right? Like, hey, I saw you reading this book. How is it so far? Did you get to this part? What are your thoughts on it? Like, those are like ice-breaking opportunities to be able to build rapport with people. Well, these are, are effective practices for use in the classroom. And definitely, I think it's even important to even introduce students to the concepts of anti-bias, anti-racism, using these same vehicles, right? Like, what do you know about bias? And they might be little kids, but hey, they've heard certain words before. And I'm not saying you come in in kindergarten and start talking about certain things, but definitely by the time you hit third and fourth grade, students are able to start having some some conversation because they have some life experience. They've seen some things, right? Especially students that are in inner city environments. I know that the students that we support have seen a whole lot in their young lives. And sometimes that helps us to be able to help them work through some of the things that they've seen. So I agree with you. This is, it's highly important. And I wanted to make sure that we got from you as a practitioner in those grade levels of how you were doing that. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Leading by History, some awesome stuff we've been discussing. When I say to you critical theory, critical pedagogy, or some say pedagogy. I come from the old school, right, where we, where we said pedagogy, right? We, we pronounce things a certain way. Uh, and I know today with, with, the, uh, with the speaking of Greek, pedagogy, but I, I stick to the old, you know, I still say data as opposed to data, right? <laughs> but when I say to you, 
critical theory or critical pedagogy. What's your understanding of that? I think about the way that we teach and the methods and language and types of instruction we use to assist our students in recognizing like dominant power structures. How do we challenge those? How do we begin to dismantle them? I feel like when I think of the term like critical pedagogy, it makes me think about how do we teach towards liberation? And I know that's also like very vague, but those are, I think, my first word associations. So when we think about this, because I want to make sure that those K-12 teachers that are listening, you know, are getting a bar of this, as they say on the West Coast, I want them to get a bar. And, and, and in seeing this, you know, to think about what do we mean when we say critical pedagogy? And I think one of the things that I think, what is it, Max Horkheimer, I think is one of the, the earlier forerunners, the German philosopher who actually had some influence, I think, in the, in the 1930s or 40s with sort of thinking about this transformational way of pulling in Hegel and Marx into teaching philosophy and all of that. But one of the things that he points out is that when we talk about critical pedagogy, we're actually talking about saying what is wrong with the current condition of something. Mm-hmm. I think when people think about critical, that it, it, it's more so like, well, you know, it's this highfalutin, like we're getting deep, you know, it's, it's cr- a critical pedagogy. So, you know, we're, we're going to just talk about the depth and the deepness of, no, but it's, it's on a basic level. It means to critique the current situation and the current social conditioning, right? So critical pedagogy is, yeah, it's critical as in very important. You can define the word critical that way, but it also is like, what's wrong with the way that we teach and do instruction today? Mm-hmm. My question for you is, what things do you see or have you experienced in dealing with K-12 teachers? What are some things that definitely are wrong or are challenges to being effective for students? What things are anti-critical pedagogy that you've experienced so that we can sort of have a brief laundry list for teachers of things they might want to go back and check when they get into their classrooms again? Oh, my God. I mean, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think some of the most basic ones are just thinking about what types of practices do we continue to perpetuate just because, A, like they are, they're easier for us, like these are the things that maybe the teacher next door was doing. So therefore I adopted this practice and this is just something that's been embedded in quote unquote traditional American education for X number of years. So it's always been done this way. So we're going to keep doing it this way. I think sometimes it's really hard for folks to think about how to teach certain topics or subjects beyond what they experience themselves as students. And like, for example, math is something that comes to mind and thinking about how Common Core is approaching math from a very different way. And like myself, I was trained in cognitively guided instruction, which is very different than just teaching like a standard algorithm. I think that a lot of things that prevent educators are also rooted in discomfort. And we tend to place that blame on students rather than self-reflect and think about, is this really something I think my students will struggle with? Or is this something that I'm currently struggling with? And also just inexperience and the way that school schedules and teacher schedules are organized these days, it's very hard to create meaningful time to unpack a lot of this. You know, I think Mm -hmm. in a lot of PDs, as you mentioned, like teachers don't like PD because so much information is thrown at teachers. And then there's just assumption 
that you will go home and continue to unpack and reflect on this all in your own time with like all of the other things that you have to do. So, I mean, there is absolutely a laundry list, but I think in terms of like, what are some of the most immediate things we can do is really start to push back on this idea of what are we holding on to because it's rooted in tradition or nostalgia. And also thinking about the way that we define like effective, the way that we define successful. And I think given everything happening in the world right now with all of like schools being shut down and the way that like distance learning is being implemented. I keep seeing so like I've gotten so many text messages from parents of former students who are sending me photos of like these thick worksheet packets that have been sent home. Mm. And it's just like, this is not, this is not necessary. This is not learning. This is task completion, which is not the same thing as learning. Mm. And why are we holding kids to expectations that we right now, like, couldn't hold for ourselves. Like I know with everything happening in the world, like I can't even pick, pick up like my favorite book right now because I'm so distracted. There's so much stuff going on. But we expect little kids to sit in front of a screen to attend like Zoom class for X number of hours per day and then complete like a hundred worksheets. Like why? What is the, what's the purpose of that? It's all about compliance rather than right. creating like authentic, meaningful learning opportunities. And like right now, I feel like one of the biggest ones we're missing is how do we model self-care and adaptation to what's happening in our worlds? Sorry, that was my, my rant about everything online right now. No, I think that that's fantastic. I love what you just said, where you talked about task completion versus learning. I think that that's very important. At this time where we're doing this, uh, this recording, you know, the coronavirus has been moving at rapid rates throughout the United States. Some cities have curfews. The National Guard has been called into some places. Governors are placing shutdowns on, on businesses, etc. cetera. Uh, you've got people that are in power at the highest levels that are saying, I read the lieutenant governor, I think of Texas said that he would rather die than allow the economy to be destroyed for his children in their future. He wants them to have the America that he had. Yes, I saw. Um, and, 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 it, and it's like, so we're, we're living in a time where, I mean, nobody wants the economy to tank, right? I don't want to be living in Mad Max Thunderdome. You see what I'm saying? Or, or I don't want to be living in the Book of Eli, right, and all of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think the health of people is extremely important. And I don't just mean physical health, but their mental health. You know, what you allude to is that, you know, here we're saying, oh, well, kids have to get grades or they have to do this and that, and there has to be this compliance. And therefore, let's send these packets uh, let's have these Zoom sessions for kids and let's just try to cover standards, cover standards, material and all of that. But I've heard educators who really understand what's going on say what we really should be focusing on right now is making sure that kids understand, that students understand this world in which they live, that these times and how these things are different and how they can actually lay the foundation for how we do things differently going forward. Uh, one of my buddies that I had on the show, uh, Kevin Levin, a historian who does great work in, in Civil War history, put something up in the Twitter world in which he said, we need to be having students documenting their experiences right now because these are invaluable primary source documents for the coming generation. 
And when I saw that, I immediately was like, right on. Other people saw the power in what he said. And I think he just stated today that he got off of an interview with the Smithsonian concerning that. You know, they're looking at what he's doing with his students concerning that. Look, learning is supposed to be engaging, right? It's supposed to be something that that pushes you and challenges you to want to know more. As you said, the inquiry or inquiry-based model of what is it that you know, but what is it that you want to know? Like, I think this is an opportunity in this now turning online digital age of things to recognize that, man, if you didn't have the juice when you were in the classroom, if your pedagogy wasn't critical then, you really are going to be lost now. You know, nobody wants to watch you lecture on Zoom for two hours about bull run. You know what I'm saying? Like, how are teachers who don't understand what inquiry-based learning is about, how are they going to now function if they say, going forward, we're going to be doing classes online. The coming year, we're going to do blended learning. People are going to be left outside. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if there is already so much inequity happening within our schools, like within like concrete walls, then all of those issues are certainly just going to be exacerbated by everything that's happening right now. I think you'll see things like kids who are coming from more like wealthier, affluent or like connected families, their parents are going to have the ability to work with them on new material. They're going to have the ability to like interact with like enrichment activities and things that other students aren't. Like I can think of a number of students who did not have access to internet, to tech at least that they could do work on at home. And like when we say tech, like there's a huge difference between a kid having access to a laptop to do work and a kid trying to do work on like their parents' smartphone, you know? Right. Um, And unfortunately, like any of these issues, I think are just going to show like the glaring holes of inequity in our educational systems, but hopefully we'll also make people more aware of them too. Because I think already, because all learners are like at home right now with their families, people are beginning to really see all of like the the back end of the work that teachers do in terms of planning and sequence. And um, when students don't understand something or they're struggling with something that we're not there to just like teach them how to multiply numbers and how to read, but there is so much other additional individualized support that we end up giving our kids. I have really no prediction to make about what's going to happen here. This is so uncharted for, for everybody, but I'm certainly hoping that we can come out different on the other end and come out having learned something new from this. And I think that this experience that we're all having is really a type of ground zero, if you will, for practicing, becoming, learning how to become a practitioner of anti-bias and anti-racist work and viewing what we do through the lens of social justice and equity, right? Because as you stated, a lot of our students are in disparity, right, to other students that have access to, you know, Chromebooks and all of these other kind of things and have, you know, fast Wi-Fi, right? Where some some may still be, you know, crawling around on a phone line with old AOL, you know, sign-ins, you know what I mean? Like we may have kids that are in such different spaces and places when they go home. And this is the thing. Some of our students actually come to school to escape abuse, and to, and to escape oppressive systems of family, and now they're there. And who is protecting them and looking out for them 
but we want to make sure that they finish this thousand page packet by the end of the week. Right. We want to make sure, as I read one school system was saying, they're requiring their teachers to be in front of the Zoom, right, between eight and two consistently. You know, Zoom has that back end thing where the person who's in charge of, of the uh of the Zoom conference can see whether you, you've been idle for longer than 30 uh, seconds or so. I mean, how do you require people during this time to be somewhere between eight and two when people have family members and older parents and people who are, who are already battling some form of sickness, people are afraid. Now that doesn't mean we do nothing. That doesn't mean that we hide in our homes and we hide from information and we just say, oh, the world is ending chicken little and there's nothing that we can do to improve and better ourselves and our families. No, but there has to be a balance. And I think that the things that you've discussed and talked about, man, that's stuff that you can do online. Like how difficult is it to send kids a KWL chart, right, to be able to say, for this week, what are the things that you know about what's going on? What do you want to know more about when it comes to COVID-19 or to uh, the way that, you know, whatever. Like, we can be gathering so much powerful information. Like, like Kevin said, we can have students writing about real-life experiences that's going to be invaluable going forward. So I really hope that teachers see how not only challenging this time is, right, but also how powerful it is, how much potential it has for us to really be able to engage students in a new way. Yeah, I could not have said it better. I absolutely agree. And I think so much of this as, um, you know, we talked about a bit when, I, when we met in Richmond is thinking about like these characteristics of white supremacist culture and the way that we think about this idea of like efficiency and compliance and that so much of so many of the choices that we're making right now, especially involving education and what we're asking our students to do are also rooted very deeply in like a capitalist mindset when we equate productivity um, with a certain type of value and that it can only look like a certain type of work. I think this could also be a really incredible opportunity like to circle back to what we were talking about with some of the the great thinkers of this work, like Audre Lorde, who talked about how self-care and self-preservation, like this is an act of political warfare. And like what mm. can by talking and teaching our students about caring for yourself in a time like this, what can we learn from ourselves and just the things that we're experiencing and feeling and when this is over, and hopefully that's sooner rather than later, what can we take with us to apply to this world that we now see in a completely different way? Fantastic. Is there anything that you're working on right now as we come to the end of the program? Is there anything that you're working on that we need to be on the look lookout for? Um, any work that you're doing right now that you want to share with the audience so that they can um, make sure that they're staying informed? Sure. I mean, at the moment, since we are all like under kind of like lockdown in California and a lot of folks who I work with in this fields are also out of work and out of income. Um, we have put together a five-week learning course um, called Liberate and Chill. Um, you can find it on Twitter, Instagram, or just the website liberateandchill.org. Content on there should be up for a bit, and we are in the works of thinking about what's going to happen next if this situation is going to stay for more than a couple of weeks, which is what it, it certainly seems like. Also currently working on my book. It's supposed to come out next year. At this point, I'm not quite sure when that might happen, mm. um, but it's also something to keep an eye out for. And I'm 
far more active on Instagram than Twitter. And my handle is at teach and transform. If folks want to get in touch, they can certainly reach me there. Well, it's been great to have you on the show with us and to be able to talk about some of these critically important uh, aspects of instruction and teaching and uh, dealing with anti-bias, anti-racism. I mean, this is the kind of content that we need K-12 educators to be familiar with. We know that this work is being done in the academic levels and the halls of academia. Um, we know that you know, people are, are writing the papers and doing the research, but we want K-12 educators to be aware and to know what to read. So a as we end out, I'm going to say, you know, a, a couple of, of names, and you just sort of tell me uh, a quick response when you hear these names. Are you okay. ready? Yeah. All right. Um, Angela Davis. Oh, anti-racist. I think she, her quote about it's not enough to be non-racist, you must be anti-racist is something that has resonated with me for such a long time. And I think about it deeply when I work with kids and just in my own life. Awesome. She's just, she's amazing. <laughs> bell hooks. When I think about bell hooks, I think about the curiosity I felt when I first saw her name and thinking about why she chose to have her first and last name in lowercase. Um, and thinking about how she chooses to decenter herself in that choice to keep the focus primarily on the work and her activism and what she's trying to put out into the world. And I think that is just an incredible message and lesson that too many people could learn from. Paolo Freire. Liberation. Um, I think about his quote about what it means to align yourself with those who have been oppressed throughout history. And it's not about speaking for them. Um, but it's about willing, being willing to stand by and fight by the side of other people. Like even if their interests might seem disconnected from yours, like that's still a stand that you're willing to take. Fantastic. Any books that you would recommend before we leave out? Ooh, um, so because everything happening right now with the coronavirus and as an Asian American person, there are a folks are listening, I'm sure you're aware that there's been a huge increase in hate crimes, again, like verbal and physical assault against people who are East Asian presenting, Chinese presenting. Um, there is such a history of anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism in the United States that I think a lot of people are not aware of because folks of East Asian descent are so unfortunately aligned with like the model minority stereotype, which is incredibly problematic for many reasons. Um, I would recommend this book called Yellow by Frank Wu, who is the first Asian law professor of, at Howard University. And it's a great history. It talks a lot about the history of Asian Americans um, in this country, primarily East Asians. I do want to be specific there. But if you're not familiar with this history, these identities and that struggle, like I highly encourage you to educate yourself there. Fantastic. I thank you for being with us. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been real. And I encourage the audience to, to stay tuned to your work and the things that you're going to be putting out in the near future. Look, stay safe. Keep washing your hands. <laughs> keep the social distancing. But at the same time, you know, continue to build your uh, aspects of, of better humanity, uh, relationships, and abilities to communicate. All of you out there, look, we know these are trying times. and uh, 
and, and we want to support you in the ways that we can through our platform, and we want to continue to provide you with information to help keep you uh, on the cutting edge of what's happening in history and in education and in a world that's constantly changing and continuously changing and changing at a very rapid rate. Um, we thank you all for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast this week. Thank you, Liz, for being with us. And we say to you from Leading by History, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.